राजीव मल्होत्रा प्रोफेसर वाहिदनाथन जनरल बख्शी डॉक्टर नागेस्वामी एंड मेंबर सेक्रेटरी ऑफ दिस ग्रेट ऑर्गेनाइजेशन व्हिच नीड्स अ ट्रंकेशन इन नेम शुड बी जस्ट कॉल्ड द सेंटर फॉर नेशनल आर्ट्स The theme today is global uh, perceptions arising out of the second uh, uh, Swadeshi Indology campaign, I would say. I'm privileged to know uh, Rajiv Malhotra. I know what a sacrifice he made of his career in telecom uh, to devote his attention to this. Uh, I call him a revolutionary <coughs> because he is able to smash the Western scholars in their own idiom. You can always insulate yourself from Western scholars and say, let them go to hell. That won't solve our problem. What we need is the ability to know what the argument so far has been and the footnoting that is done to support that argument and then take it apart in the same idiom and logic that they use in their academics. So if you are to train people, scholars, you must do it that way. I, I think it's very difficult to clone Rajiv Malhotra, but we need many Rajiv Malhotras. I would say that this Swadeshi ideology or Indology has come through several phases already. Mahatma Gandhi popularized the word. He essentially meant Swaraj. Then Dindal Upadhyay contributed to the Swadeshi economics, which, couldn't, which has not been yet fully developed because he didn't have, live long enough. He was assassinated. And uh, his successors have not yet devoted energy and time that it deserves. And uh, now we have this new field of Swadeshi Indology. I would uh, say that Swadeshi Indology has five dimensions. Uh, one is the defining of our identity. All countries which have progressed uh, substantially in the last <clears throat> 200 years have devoted a lot of energy and attention to Swadeshi, uh, to their identity. Samuel Huntington, a professor at Harvard, wrote a book, Who We Are, or Who Are We? And there he defines an American as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant English-speaking citizen. Now, when it was pointed out to him that there are a lot of non-whites, 
uh, non-Christians or non-Protestants. He said, yes, they are all citizens of the United States. But the concept of American is the original concept for which it was created. And that is what he said is the white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Christian, English-speaking, American. The British Prime Minister about two years ago had defined the identity of a Britain as a Christian. And when it was pointed out to him, there are a large number of other religions also. He said, yes, they are all citizens. But the identity of an Englishman is that he is a Christian. And you can see across a large number of countries, you go to China, they say our identity is Han, even though there have been Mongols and there have been other kinds of people also in China. So what is our identity? And I, not being in this field, but as a, what I say, person who has been um, forcibly interfering in it because of the uh, atrocities committed by Western scholars, I've defined our identity as a Hindu or someone whose ancestors are Hindus. That doesn't disparage anybody who becomes an Indian citizen. But the, the flow of our civilization is essentially at the core Hindu. And uh, there have been others who have contributed here and there to shape our uh, culture. But like the Ganga, which flows with a lot of little rivers joining in, the name Ganga doesn't change. It is known as Ganga. And the same way, the, the culture, which I say, is not only of Hindus, but those who are willing to acknowledge that their ancestors are Hindus, they together form the identity of our country. And uh, modern genetic science through DNA has shown that our DNA is more or less the same all over the country, whether it's Hindu or Muslim, or it's Brahmin or scheduled caste. And so this explodes the division of our identity into Dravidian and Aryan. As being nothing to do, the Aryan word, of course, doesn't exist. Only Arya exists. Arya just means a civilized person. And Dravida is a Sandhi of two words, essentially meaning South India, which Adi Shankara invented when he, went, when he debated Mandana Mishra. So therefore, this British attempt to do, divide our country into two societies, two nations, that, uh, of course, has to be now completely eliminated from our uh, Indology. We need uh, to know that if you really study Ramayana and Mahabharata as historical texts, it defines repeatedly that we are one country. When Mahabharata war took place, kings from all over India came. Recently, I was with the in the palace of the Travancore Rajas in Trivandrum, and they pointed out to me that the Maharaja of Travancore actually participated in the Mahabharata war. 
In fact, all kings participated. But in his case, it was unique because when he reached Kurukshetra, he found that essentially it was a fight between two families. He said, I cannot participate in that, so I'll cook for both sides. So he set up temps, uh, tents in both uh, camps and served them food. Uh, as you know, our system of fighting was you start the fight when the sun rises and you go back to your tent and sleep when the sun sets. And so uh, the participation was total. And that's what Chanakya had said about Janapadas uniting at times of crisis. And in fact, Chanakya himself with, the, uh, with Chandragupta, the correct history shows he went all the way to the western borders to fight the invaders. So this, uh, this identity needs to be developed based on our texts. They may have poo-pooed our texts, but they have ultimately the structure of even British historians of India is Puranas. How do you know that Ashoka was the son of Bindusara? The only place, the only record is that of the Puranas. So the Puranas are accepted. So this is uh, num uh, number one. The second is much of our history can be reconstructed without controversy by just relying on foreigners who came to our country before we were invaded. Harvard University celebrated its tricentennial year in 1936, invited scholars from all over the world. And from China, they invited the president of Beijing, Dr. Hu Shi. And uh, uh, he was a great poet also, and a great scholar of history. And they asked him to give an address on any topic that he felt was of importance to China. And he titled his subject, which today, if you go to the Widener Library at Harvard, you can uh, take out the tricentennial volumes and you can see his speech. He titled his speech as The Indianization of China, a case of 300 years of cultural borrowing, peaceful cultural borrowing. And he says, without firing a single bullet, the Hindus came from India and transformed the way uh, the Chinese began to think. Hardly anybody knows about this. If I ask any history student, I have not found, I mean, maybe occasional I found one or two, seeing that they saw it, a reference to it in Panikar's book. But by and large, it's not part of our reading. It should be part of our reading material. What Farsian said after 11 years of touring India, what Bodhi Dharma, who left from Kanchipuram and went to Shaolin and invented what is now known to us from the Japanese as karate, all these have not been formed a part of our narrative. And the key word that Rajiv Malhotra uses is the narrative must be ours, but the battlefield is in the West. But we must first get our narrative right, and that is the other thing. Same thing with our military history. Uh, our Bakshi is here, General Bakshi, is a fund of knowledge. It's a fact, I'm, I mean, I won't go into the details of it, but every other country which Islam invaded and took over, it took them just two, week, uh, two decades 
to convert the entire local population to 100% Muslim. Iran, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, all the civilizations were destroyed and they converted the local population to 100% Islam. Even the Christians in Europe took 50 years, but they converted them to 100% Christian. But here, 800 years of Islamic rule, 200 years of Christian rule, and you're still 80% Hindu, that itself is a big miracle that has to be understood. But that phenomenon must be explained. Every part of India was in a, in a rebellion. It was never accepted. They fought. I can understand the emotions of people when they see some film made on Padmini or on Joda Bhai and so on. Because that's a total distortion of our history. It changes the perception. So this is another area which needs to be done. The uh, correct history of our science and technology for which I think you have some 14 volumes. Needham did it and made us all think that Chinese invented everything. But the Chinese say that the Indians taught us, only that we don't read that part. So the his science technology, calculus, calculus was sent by Bhaskaracharya to Leibniz. Leibniz then sent it to Newton for recognition. Newton copied it and passed it off as his own. And the battle was remaining whether it's Leibniz or whether it's Newton. But factually correct it is that it was Bhaskaracharya. Calculus was invented here. You read George Gamow's book, the great uh, writer on rocket science in America. He says it is the Hindus who invented rocketry, rocket propulsion. But our people don't know that. They sometimes laugh at this pushpak and this imagination that we had an aeroplane. But I came across a reference, which I tried to get the original, I've not got it, called Vimana Shastra. And somebody who had read it or part of it, I asked him what was the fuel that the Vimana was using? And he said, mercury. Then I asked scientists, is it possible mercury can ever be a fuel for transportation? He said, well, so far we have not succeeded. But we all know in science, especially aeronautical sciences, that a drop of mercury produces more than 10 barrels of oil in terms of airline fuel. So in fact, uh, he says in the long run, maybe he said 100 years from now, mercury will be the airline fuel. And it's there in the Vimana Shastra, which must be at least 2,000 years old. Nobody has done original research on that. And finally, I would say, unless we make Sanskrit compulsory in India, you will never get the transformation that you're looking for through these kinds of seminars. Everybody must learn. And this mythology that it is a dead language, this mythology that it's a tough language, I've seen the Sanskriti Bharati is able to make people converse in Sanskrit in 10 days. And just three months is all that you need to become proficient in Sanskrit. Of course, if we try to do it now, they will say we are intolerant. But that doesn't matter. 
it's only a matter of time because Sanskrit is now being discovered as the language of the future in computer, particularly artificial intelligence. And you have some of these people, they are not sporadic. You have a school in Britain called St. John's School where they teach Sanskrit because the vibrations it produces by you know, uttering Sanskrit words develops your brain. Sanskrit is now taught in Germany in a big way. It's an increasing, it's become a craze. I suppose it becomes a fashion in Europe, then we will also very readily accept uh, Sanskrit. But Sanskrit is something that we had to do. I was seeing a judgment of the Supreme Court by Justice Ganguly. It was actually a very ordinary looking judge, title, uh, UP trading, uh, trading Corporation or something like that versus somebody. And there he expounds something I had never thought. Having studied so much law, I, I have never come across this. I think this is a, another new subject for Rajiv Malhotra, taking the battle of Sanskrit once, one, to the next volume. And there, Justice Ganguly in the Supreme Court, in the judgment, describes Jaimini's sutras. And he says that the uh, Mimamsa principles of logic is superior to the school of logic that we use in our courts today, and that is the Matthew school of logic. And uh, consequently, uh, he said that in the long run, we should replace the uh, Mimamsa school of logic in our court system because it's much more it's multidimensional as opposed to unidimensional approach of the Western school of logic for legal purposes. So you, you go on discovering more and more things that you have mastered. And so what we are now working towards is what I call as a renaissance. We have to create a new Indian. If you don't like the word Hindustani or Hindu, I, I, the word Indian, even today China and all its official publications describe India as Hindu Go, which means Hindu Rashtra. And I asked my communist friends, how come you don't fight that communal? Should condemn the Chinese for being communal. But the fact is that whatever is the word you use, ultimately it has to be Hindustan, where you incorporate those who also accept that they are citizens of this earth and create a new revolution is a strong word, but certainly a mind change. The mindset is ultimately the clue. You can be a strong lion that can tear anybody into pieces, but you can see, witness in a circus, five strong lions obeying a thin ringmaster. This is what explained to me why we had a prime minister who was afraid of a foreign woman, even though he was a prime minister, because of this mindset. If you've been brought up to obey, you will obey, no matter what your strength. You will not know your strength. So this mindset revolution is what this Swadeshi Indology is all about. And I very much congratulate the center. Ram Badur Rai, I've not seen here. He's a late riser, I think. That's why he's not here. Probably be there in the afternoon. The great revolutionary, he was the right. Jay Prakash Narayan used to say, he's my right hand. Govind Acharya was my left hand, he said. Ram Badur Rai is my right hand. So the great organizers of the JP movement, 
and a genuine re revolutionary, not one of these bogus ones, and 100% uh, Swadeshi. He's been made the chairman. I'm so pleased to, when I heard that at that time, and I think now we should become a nucleus, a critical mass to challenge all the so-called conventional versions of our history and present to the world a new documented, researched history of the true history of India. Thank you very much.